Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And Father, we recognize our need for a deliverer the same as the people of old. And as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what is wonderfully here before us. May we see Christ in a new, in a fresh, and delightful way. We ask this for your name's sake, we pray, amen. Well, one of the things that makes the Christmas season so magical and fun are the Christmas lights. In fact, we were stuck in holiday traffic last night driving back into the LA area and uh, saw a, someone like an upland, we have the, the star right at the top of Euclid that shines brightly. Uh, someone had put a huge tree up along the, the side of the freeway and you could see it for miles all around. But we, we love seeing the lights around Christmas time. They're strung on buildings, they're tacked onto houses, uh, they're run through bushes in every just about place we can get them. And uh, we love to see majestic light displays. In fact, it's uh, destinations for us, right? To go see who's purchased the most lights, put them all in one place, and to see how bright it can glow from Christmas lights uh, in this time of year. And one of the reasons that lights work this time of year is because it gets so dark so soon, right? Uh, the days are short, and therefore the darkness hits, and so the light from these Christmas lights shines brightly in the midst of the dark. The night provides the backdrop that these lights can sh shine the midst of. But these lights, particularly around Christmas times, around Christmas time, can and should point us to a deeper reality, a reality that there is a brighter light that shines even in a deeper darkness. It's a darkness that represents what's wrong with humanity. Now, many would say that what is wrong with humanity is that is a lack of education. We just need people to learn more, to be educated, and that would solve the problems of the world. Others think that what's wrong with the world is a lack of wealth, and if more people could be wealthy, then that would solve the problems of the world. Whereas others would say, yet still, that self-esteem, the lack of self-esteem is the problem. Everyone is so fed up with themselves and discouraged that there's no hope. But I like how uh, Pastor Alistair Begg says it. He says, if those things are the problem, then why are family gatherings at Christmas so often occasions of discord and conflict, even for the most academically gifted, the most well-off, and the most personally confident people? In other words, you can have all those problems solved, and yet there's still a problem. There's still a problem. And the reason is, is that there is a deeper problem with society and with humanity, and it's what God, through the Bible, calls sin. Sin is found in every human heart, and it stains everything. This world has fallen. But most importantly, each and every 
person is fallen. We fail to live up to God's standard, which is perfection, Matthew 5, 48 says. And for some reason, is it not true that the holidays can be the time that we are most reminded of the sin that exists in humanity? We're reminded of our own sins, how we have hurt other people, other family members. We're reminded of the greed that exists in every human heart. We're reminded of maybe the sin and, and what other people have done to us. We're reminded how relationships have been damaged and destroyed. And this darkness is really felt by all, even by the most cheery among us. And Christmas time can often cause us to feel it more acutely. But this is a situation, this darkness, we can't change on our own. We are unable to pull ourselves out of this mess. But we must be saved from this darkness. Therefore, we need light. Mankind need, needed light to come from God above and to shine into our night, personally and corporately. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, we, let us be reminded that the light God did send 2,000 years ago. And I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 1, the very end of chapter 1, we'll begin reading this morning in verse 67. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, being John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until his day, the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now at the time these words were spoken, 
Israel had been in its own darkness. Several hundred years prior, they had been exiled out of their land, and their temple was destroyed. They had been humbled as a people. But even though they had returned to the land and had rebuilt the temple, they still remained under the control of a Gentile power. And since the prophet Malachi had relayed the words of the Lord 400 years prior, Israel had been in a prophetic darkness as well. They had heard nothing from God in 400 years. Again, that for perspective, that 400 years ago, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock from us today. It feels like a long time. Were they forgotten? Would his promises come true that they've read about? And personally, they were each reminded by the bloody sacrifices that they'd had to offer over and over again that there was a darkness that was inside of them as well. Their consciences were not cleansed. And so they, too, needed the light of God to break into their darkness. In this passage, Zechariah breaks out into spirit-filled praise and prophecy. If you've been with us, you know that he has been silent for nine months. After the angel told him that he, his wife would bear a son, he disbelieved the angel, and therefore he was struck with silence. And now, having expressed his faith in the Lord, he is, his mouth is opened, his tongue loosened, and he's able to praise the Lord once again. And he uses this newfound freedom well. Now, two weeks ago, if you were with us, we looked at verses 67 through 75. And in those verses in which Zechariah is praising the Lord, we saw that he, we saw the truths of the gospel revealed there. That through Jesus, there is redemption and there is salvation. And he will continue those themes in the verses that we're looking at this morning. The verses that we're looking at this morning of 76 through 80, revolve really around what's found in verse 77, and that is the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. This is salvation that is found in the Messiah. It's a salvation that is the result of God's mercy in verse 78. And it's the reason that the sunrise has visited us from on high. The sunrise, as I'll argue later, is a reference to the Messiah, to God's Son, Jesus. And so in this passage, we'll see the significance of the salvation that's found in Jesus. And I want to draw your attention to six features in this passage, six features of salvation through Jesus, so that we would believe in him and receive the salvation that he brings. So first, let's see the first feature of salvation in Jesus is that this salvation was proclaimed by John. And we see this in verse 76. Verse 76, Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. After addressing God in verses 68 through 75, Zechariah now addresses his son, who's only eight days old. 
And he gives John a title, and he gives, speaks about John's role. In other words, he's answering the two questions, who is he and what will he do? Who is he and what will he do? The first question, who is he? He says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, back in verse 32, the angel had told Mary that her son would be called the Son of the Most High. Here, John is called the prophet of the Most High. The Most High being a designation for God, the the most glorious, the most high, the one who's exalted above all. John is going to be a spokesman for the Most High God. But even though John holds an important role as a spokesman for the Most High, he is still subservient to Mary's son, who is a son of the Most High. And we see this throughout the narrative. John has a special role to play in God's plan, but his role is simply to play the background and to point people to God's Son, the Messiah. We see that even in their titles here. But what will this prophet do? What's his role? Why why has he come on the scene? His father says, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This, some have a question of whether this the Lord here means God in a general sense or whether it means God's the Son in a specific sense. And I think it really carries uh, a double reference here. Because these words of going before the Lord is Zechariah had heard the angel tell him that in verses 16 and 17 of this very chapter. When the angel was telling him that he was going to have a son and he would go before the Lord. But that was simply a reference back to Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3 verse 1. And so what's happening here is this pulling in of this Old Testament language of the Lord. And what we're going to see revealed is that the Lord is the one who's in flesh walking upon the earth. And that John will go before the Lord preparing God's people for the Messiah. Like a farmer preparing soil for seed, so John prepared the hearts of the people to hear the message of the Messiah. Now in chapter 3, John's ministry is going to leap onto the scene. We're going to see more of, of all that he does, the message that he proclaims, and what his role is in the, God's plan for the Messiah. But for now, we can see that Zechariah is identifying the role of his son that will play in God's unfolding plan. He's going to be the forerunner. He's going to go before the Messiah, preparing the people so that when the Messiah steps on the scene, they'll be ready to receive him, to embrace him. They'll be ready to repent. Remember, this John is the one who recorded in John 1 verse 29, who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was not pointing to a salvation that he had. But he prepares the way for people by pointing to the Messiah. There is one coming, he said, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He wanted the people of Israel to know that they could receive salvation through the forgiveness of sins only through Jesus. 
And so we see in this text the first feature of salvation through Jesus is primarily historical, and that is that John preached this salvation to the nation of Israel to let the people know that this salvation was coming. But secondly, the second feature that we see is that this salvation through Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. It brings forgiveness of sins. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, the explosive message that John was to bring to the people of Israel was that through Jesus the Messiah, they could know the salvation of God personally. And that's important to see is that the the word knowledge here is not just an intellectual knowledge. In other words, John was not coming just to let people know that, hey, just by the way, I want you to know public service advertisement here that there happens to be a salvation over here. You know, just thought you want to know about that. Um, You can do with it what you want. No, he... This is a knowledge that is an intimate knowing, an intimate knowledge to know personally the salvation. He didn't come to solve an ignorance problem. He he needed to bring about new life for these people to know this personally. Now we can kind of talk about it in our own common language by saying we, we, uh, we know about something. Some say, oh yeah, I know about that. Or to say, oh, I know all about that, right? Say, take rock climbing, for example. You know about rock climbing, or you know all about rock climbing. And if you know all about rock climbing, you've rock climbed, you know all the equipment, you know everything about it. You personally are acquainted with what rock climbing is and requires. But there's plenty of people that can watch a YouTube video or read a Wikipedia article and can know about rock climbing. What John, what Zechariah is mentioning here is a knowledge of salvation that's personal, that's intimate, and that's experienced. God sent his son into the world in order to enable his people to experience salvation at an intimate, personal level. And Zechariah knows that this salvation is in the forgiveness of their sins. In the forgiveness of their sins. This was an internal, spiritual salvation. Even though being set free from enemies is mentioned earlier in Zechariah's praise here, talking about being set free from enemies, and that certainly included the corporate enemies of Israel, those who were looking to to kill Israel and, and stomp them out. But here, Zechariah goes deeper to the spiritual reality. Now, it's important to think about the context here. Remember, we're, we're, we're talking about really Old Testament believers. Zechariah is a priest in the temple. Okay, so the New Testament order of things with the church and all of that is still yet to come. He's operating. When the pages of the New Testament open, in one sense, we still have an Old Testament economy. We still have an Old Testament uh, setup for the nation. And they were, have the law of God, which told them how they could could find forgiveness for their sins, right? The old, the law, the sacrificial system told them they could bring animals and they could go through the certain procedures in order for them to have the blood of that animal spilt so that they might receive forgiveness. And in a real sense, believers who, who brought those animals to be sacrificed could go home that day knowing that they were forgiven. 
The Old Testament says, you do this and you will be forgiven your sins. That is the words of God. They could trust that word and go home and know that they were forgiven. But those sacrifices looked forward to when they would ultimately be dealt with, when their sins would ultimately be dealt with. And the offering of those animals would no longer be needed. And as the book of Hebrews makes clear, that it's under the Mosaic law, believers could not have their consciences cleansed. They were reminded by each sacrifice that they were not able to be fully cleansed internally. But the salvation that Zechariah is looking forward to is what's promised in the New Covenant. The New Covenant, the passage in Jeremiah that I read to start out our service, that, that there was, will be a new covenant with the house of Israel in which he will write their law with, his law within them, and there will be internal transformation. That is what Zechariah is looking forward to. Now, Israel will not experience on a massive scale this kind of internal transformation, salvation, until the end times. When they, there will be a mass revival and they will all turn to Christ and put their faith in Him, as the Scriptures indicate. But for us today, we can experience this same salvation. We can experience this personal salvation through Jesus, the Messiah. And this is only possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. Jesus needed to come and take our sins upon himself and pay the penalty our sins deserved by dying upon the cross. Each of us deserve to be punished in hell forever for our cosmic rebellion against our Creator. We were made by him, made to worship and obey and love him with all of our hearts, but we all fail to do that. And therefore, we are deserving of his wrath. The Bible says that the, the wages of sin is death. And that even though physical death came about that we all experience because of sin, there is what the Bible calls the second death. The second death that is more serious than the first and that relates to where the, the eternality of your soul. And that all those who have not placed their faith in Christ will experience the second death. But for now, as we have ears to listen... And as we are alive in this life, the, the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus is available to us. That we might turn from our sin, turn from our rebellion, and we might embrace Christ in faith. And thus find this internal salvation, this, this radical transformation that is promised. You see, it's our sin that keeps us from being in harmony with God. There's a barrier there. And yet, through Jesus, His Son, that sin is forgiven. That barrier taken away. It's no longer standing between us and God. Now listen, our society, along with mankind for millennia, has been trying to ignore the existence of sin. They try to excuse it away. They try to think that there isn't some divine standard by which we're all going to be judged by. Because they don't like that. And we honestly can all relate to that not liking feeling, right? We don't like to be held accountable. But it's the truth. It's the truth. No matter how much they try to redefine the standard and excuse away their choices, guilt before God is unavoidable. 
They may not feel the shame, but the guilt is an objective reality. Before God's law, all are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says our Creator. Therefore, the fundamental need of people is forgiveness of sin unto salvation. And thus, the fundamental truth of the gospel that we believe and that we proclaim to others is that forgiveness of sins is offered through Jesus Christ. This is the reason Zechariah makes clear that Jesus came to earth. He came to provide salvation in the forgiveness of sins. And this is what makes Christmas so special. We're celebrating the fact that God has sent His Son, the divine Savior, to fulfill His mission of saving His people from their sins. And this is the good news offered to every one of us today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you haven't surrendered your life to Him and trusted Him for your eternal destiny, then I invite you to trust in Jesus this morning. Right where you're at, call out to Him and ask Him to save you. This is a free gift offered to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus provided everything necessary to take away your sin, to deal with it so that you might have a right relationship with God. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't think that you have another day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to any one of us. But today, you're here in the hearing of God's word that salvation is available to you. Bow before Christ the Lord and find the forgiveness to wipe your heart clean before Him and to go home guilt-free this morning. That is the promise of the gospel. I think this passage, speaking of this experience, experiential knowledge of salvation, is also a sober warning to those who have maybe sat in church for many years. Maybe you've grown up in the church. You know all the facts of the gospel. You can recite it and pass the test. You know about salvation. You know about the gospel. But there isn't an intimate knowledge. Deep down, you push everyone else away. You're at home, alone, in your room, and say, do I know the Lord? Do I have a relationship with God? I invite you to examine yourself. Do you know this salvation intimately, deep down in your bones? Do you know where you will spend eternity? That's the level of knowing that you've got to know and that you can have that assurance through Christ. Don't go home without examining your heart and your soul that you have experienced this salvation and this forgiveness deep down in your heart. If you're unsure about the salvation of your soul, I'd love to speak with you and open up the Bible and tell you how you can know that you are saved. So I invite you to come down after the service if you have any questions or any, uh, any concerns. I'd love to speak with you. Well, the third feature of salvation found through Jesus is that it proceeds 
from the mercy of God. It proceeds from the mercy of God. Look at verse 78. This, this phrase is the hinge pin of this whole passage. You've got to see this. He says, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. So look at, look at how this is the hinge pin here. 78, he, verse 77 says that there's to give a knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. Why is he giving that forgiveness? Because, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. But then he says, next phrase, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So the mercy of God is the reason that forgiveness is offered, and it's also the reason that the sunrise, or as we'll see, the Messiah, visits us. The mercy of God is the springboard. And so we see that forgiveness is offered to God's people because of the tender mercy of God. God is merciful. This is a this is a fundamental reality of, of who God is that we know from the Word of God, is that God is a God of mercy. And yes, He is a God of wrath as well, He and a God of love, and, and all these attributes we know that are in God, and they are not in, in, in conflict with one another. They're all part of the divine perfection, that God is perfect in all of His ways, and therefore all of His attributes exude from that, and they all fit together perfectly. But we see that in salvation, God is displaying His mercy to sinful mankind. But notice that it doesn't just say that God is merciful. What is it? How does it describe God's mercy? Look at it. He says, the tender mercy of our God. This word tender is uh, just a fun word to say in Greek. It's splognon, um, which just uh, you, you don't forget easily. Um, and it refers to bowels. So it says the bowels of mercy. And we don't speak, we don't usually use the word bowels in our everyday language. And particularly as it relates to God, it's not... Um, you know, a category of systematic theology or something. Um, so what is, it, what is he saying here? Well, as our translators uh, indicate for us, is that the bowels were seen as, the, as the, the deepest part of us, the most central part of the being. And so to, to refer to the bowels of mercy, it speaks of the deep personal nature of this mercy. It, it means deep personal emotion especially compassion. So you could translate it the compassionate mercy of God. Here, the tender mercy. And so here, we're reminded that the Christmas story is not one of a distant deity who had some pity upon mankind and sent some servant to go deal with them and to help them out. No. Rather, it's a deeply caring Lord who very deeply wanted to display his salvation to you and to I. God felt deep down in himself a mercy, a compassion, a tenderness towards sinful humanity, towards you. And so when we look at the nativity scene, and we're around all of this Christmas story stuff 
this month. We need to not just see the physical things that are there. Shepherds, Mary and Joseph, hay, stable, those sorts of things. And go, oh, isn't that sweet? We need to see what is on display there is the compassionate mercy of God. Displayed in grand way. God had compassion on our helpless estate and sent His Son as an expression of His mercy toward us. Mercy simply means undeserved love. It's a love that we could not earn, that we could not merit. There's not enough good things or righteous things that we could do or even try to do to try to warrant God to be kind towards us. Instead, He had to be merciful. He had to choose to place His mercy upon us. That's exactly what he's done, and that's what Zechariah celebrates. It's because of the tender mercy of God that we can experience this salvation. Now, it's easy, I think, for us to lose sight of the tenderness of God's heart. We can get so caught up in trying to live right that we build a picture of God that's inaccurate. We Think of him as a hard taskmaster who stands back wanting us to jump higher or run faster. And think God's just not pleased with us until we do more and do better. But in reality, he is a loving father whose heart is filled with compassionate mercy towards us. And this is what motivates him. He tenderly deals with us. And so this Christmas season, let us not lose sight of the motivating reason for God's salvation of us lost sinners. It's His tender mercy. His tender mercy toward us. Well, the fourth feature of salvation through Jesus that we see in this text is that salvation through Jesus was possible because He came. Because Jesus came. And we see this in Verse 78, the end of verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Zechariah next speaks of the coming of the Messiah in beautiful language. He says that it is in the mercy of God that the sunrise shall visit us on high. And the word translated sunrise is simply means rising up. And this usually referred to a celestial body, like a star rising or a sun rising in the east. It can also uh, be referring to the changing of dark to light that occurs at dawn. Therefore, it's translated in our modern versions as sunrise or rising sun or dawn. Now, the King James translates, translated it day spring. And you may have heard that term. In fact, you'll find that term even in some of our Christmas hymns. The the day spring comes from this passage. But they're all trying to communicate the same idea. Now, it may seem like a strange way to talk about the Savior of the world as a sunrise or a rising up. But Zechariah, remember, is well steeped in the Old Testament. And he's tapping into the wording found there. And remember, the word can simply mean rising up or springing up. And therefore, some here see a reference to the messianic branch that's mentioned 
for example, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You see the, the raise up language there referring to the branch. Or it could refer to a star spoken of by Balaam in Numbers 24, verse 17. Where Balaam, uh, remember, was brought in by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. And he goes up there to, to do that. And instead, what comes out is blessing instead of cursing. And this is what he says. He says, I see him, him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Again, you see that rising up, the coming out, and this referring to a celestial body, a star. And we see also a scepter is mentioned, meaning that there's a king that's coming out of Israel. This is a wonderful messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. Or it could refer to Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, which simply says that the Son of Righteousness shall rise. The Son of Righteousness shall rise. Either way, the one rising up is the long-awaited and promised Messiah. And when he rises up, it signifies when he comes on the scene. When is he going to show up? It's when he rises up. But notice that the, the Zechariah doesn't just say that the rising up one, the rising one, would just appear. Or he's just going to show up. It says, what's the verse it uses? Or the word it uses? The sunrise shall visit us. Visit. Now this is the same word used in verse 68. Except that the use here is in the future tense. Saying that the sunrise will visit us. Visit means to make an appearance in order to help, to show up in order to lend aid. In other words, Zechariah knows that the Messiah, who is presently in utero, will have the mission to serve and to save his people. And I think this idea of the Messiah visiting is such a special way to describe the arrival of the Messiah. Because visit is such a relational word, right? We visit with relatives. We stop by and we visit friends. And here, the Messiah will visit us from on high. He's coming to stay a while. God the Son did not come to earth in a simple business transaction. He did not just stop in. He visited. He came to spend time. And he visited this earth from on high. He left the glory that he had with his father from before the world existed. And he entered time and space, taking on human flesh. As we'll see next week. And therefore we see that in order for the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins to even be ours, the sunrise had to visit us from on high. The Messiah had to come and be upon this earth. He had to condescend to earth. He had to take on the form of one of his creatures. He had to come and visit us from on high in order for us to be saved. I love the words of 
the 4th century Christian Athanasius, who said, Christ became what we are, that He might make us what He is. Now, we are not becoming gods and brought to the level of deity, but we have new life, spiritual life, life from God in us. We partake in the divine nature, as Second Peter says. We are coming to be a part of His family. And that was only possible because Jesus condescended. He humbled Himself so that we might be saved. Well, the fifth feature of salvation that we see in this text is that this salvation through Jesus gives light to our lives. Gives light to our, our lives. Verse 79 it says that the sunrise is going to visit us. The dawn is creeping up over the eastern horizon. And as the rays pierce over the horizon, it says, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The first mission that the Messiah will have is to give light. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Zechariah knows that even though Israel is controlled by its enemies, its greatest problem is its own darkness. Spiritually, God's people are sitting in darkness. They are under the shadow of death. We know that the Bible describes all humanity as sitting in this spiritual darkness. Sin has blinded their eyes. They grope around, unable to see or find the truth about themselves or about God. And so we need to come to grips with this indictment of, of all humanity. That apart from Christ, every single person sits in darkness. Sits in the shadow of death. Modern man is not enlightened. They have, we have not reached some new level of spiritual consciousness in which we are able to find our own truth. No, this world, because of sin, sits in darkness. Sin blinds and imprisons. And man must be rescued if there's to be any hope. And the good news is that a Redeemer did come. The light came to pierce the darkness. The sunshine visited us to shine into our night. Jesus flatly declared that he was the light of the world in John 8, 12. He's the light of the world who pierced into our darkness. I'm reminded of the scene in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers where the forces of good are fighting against the forces of evil and it's gloomy and dark and the rain is pouring down and the enemy is about to prevail and yet they look to the eastern horizon and there is Gandalf with the armies that rise up over and light pierces the darkness as they come down to vanquish the foes. In the same way Jesus shows up in the midst of the darkness of humanity to bring victory and to conquer our sin. But what does it mean that the light of Christ shines into our darkness. What is this? How does this bring hope for you and I today? 
I believe that the light of Christ reveals two things in us. The first is that it reveals the depth of our depravity. You see, mankind naturally compares ourselves, we compare ourselves with other people. We think we're doing okay when we look at somebody else and we, we think that we're, our righteousness is just fine because we're better than somebody else. We can easily find our moral importance through seeing ourselves as better than others. But as the Puritan Thomas Manton said, we must compare ourselves to Christ, not to other people. We must reckon our hours by the sun and not by the town clock. We've got to look to the true source of all things, not to some copy of it. And when the true light came to this world, he shined upon our filthiness. He showed us how deep our darkness was. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we see the depth of our own depravity. You see, people living, if you live in kind of a, a, a dingy room, as often some teenage rooms are, right, until mom comes in and flips on the light, and you go, ah, oh, what is all those things in the corners and and this room is way filthier than I thought. It's not until the light gets turned on that you see how filthy it is. But secondly, the light of Christ reveals the truth of God. It reveals the truth of God. Because in Christ, God was truly revealed to humanity. John 1 verse 18 says that Jesus made the Father known. And 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 clearly says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote this. He says, in nature, we see God like a sun in a picture. In the law, as sun in a cloud. In Christ, we see him in his beams, he being the brightness of his glory and the exact imprint of his person. We cannot know God outside of Christ. Jesus is the one who has revealed God and the way of salvation to us. And so the light of Christ pierced into human darkness 2,000 years ago and continues to pierce into dark hearts today as the light of Christ through the word of God goes into individual hearts and lives. But finally this morning, the sixth, sixth feature of salvation that we see in this passage is that it guides our lives. It guides our lives. The end of verse 79. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the faithful guide of his people. He is the good shepherd he does not just save them and leave them, but he continues to show them the path to walk upon. But notice what kind of path it is. It's a path of peace. Peace is a biblical way to talk about wholeness. It refers to a, a life in harmony with God and the tranquility that results from it. And so Zechariah understands that first and foremost, his people need to be led into peace with God. This peace is synonymous with light, the light and salvation already mentioned. And this is what the gospel does for sinners, right? It brings us to peace with God. When we put our faith in Christ, we are justified and therefore take up a new residence with the sign on the door that says peace with God instead of enmity with God, which is the state and residence of natural humanity. 
John's preaching prepared Israel for this peace, and Christ showed them how they might know this peace personally. And we can be eminently thankful that Christ came into our darkness, shone his light upon us, and led us into peace with God. As we wrap up this passage this morning, let me suggest some implications for us this, this Christmas season. I just ask you some questions. First is, has the light of Christ shone into your heart? Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Do you know this light, this salvation, this forgiveness personally? Secondly, are there areas of your life that the light has not yet touched? Have you been trying to keep the light of the Word of God and the light of the Gospel from shining to those certain pockets and areas of your life that you're trying to keep from the watchful eye of the Lord? You know they're there, but you want to keep them in the dark. Let the light of Christ shine into those areas today. Ask, do I appreciate the salvation I have through Jesus? Does it thrill my heart? Does the fact that the sunrise has has visited me and has given me new life and new light, does that excite me and thrill me? Am I I excited that, that this is what God has provided for me? Do I have a deep, profound gratitude for this? And finally, who is it that's around me in my life? that continues to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death? Who this Christmas season needs to hear the message of the light of Christ? Who needs to know that the sunrise has visited us from on high? Who needs that good news? Think and pray who God has placed you around, who you can share this wonderful truth with this Christmas season. This light has shined to the world, but it must be received. It was rejected by Israel on a whole-scale basis when, it arrived, when Jesus showed up on the scene. But it can be received by us today. Well, Luke chapter 1 ends with a word about John's childhood. And what jo- Luke is doing is changing the narrative. He's sunsetting uh, of John in the narrative for now and putting John aside Because Luke chapter 2, he's going to pick up the narrative of Christ. And that's where we're going to return next week, is to see the birth of our Savior. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word that reminds us of all that is provided for us in Christ. All the salvation that you have given us. Thank you that you have sent your Son from on high. That we can know new life, that we can personally, experientially know that we are saved and that our sins are forgiven. I pray that the light of Christ would continue to shine into our hearts and out through our lives to those who continue to sit in darkness all around us. We pray that you would equip us to boldly proclaim this message for Christ's glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.